Thank you kindly. Well, uh, every month this year, I've tried to bring a message that um, would help strengthen our faith in our Bibles. Uh, God has given us an amazing book called the Bible. The world rejects it. Uh, you know, even in the courts of law where you go to, um, to witness on the stand, they, they supposedly hold up a Bible. You know, sometimes it's not even a Bible. Sometimes uh, it's a dictionary or something and no one knows. They just hold up a book because they don't recognize the Bible as being a final authority. When they, uh, you know, tell you to put your hand on the Bible, the idea is that you're affirming or swearing by a uh, power higher than you. And uh, they don't believe that. If you were to uh, start quoting the Bible in a court of law, they'd shut you up pretty quick. Uh, you're not allowed to do that because they don't accept it. They don't believe that there is uh, an authority there. Now, the world is uh, changing. Um, fewer and fewer people, even people who go to church, believe in the authority of the Bible. A lot of people who go to churches believe that the Bible is, uh, is a nice book, maybe um, filled with nice stories and uh, possibly some good moral lessons there, but that the Bible is not to be taken uh, literally. Uh, they, they mock and laugh at this. Uh, I remember when I was a, a young boy, uh, a friend of mine, he and I got into a, a talk a little bit about the Bible. Now, this is before I knew the Lord as my Savior. And so um, we were talking a little bit about uh, the people in the Old Testament, like the very early Old Testament. And it says how they lived for hundreds of years. And he said to me, oh, he says, don't you know that um, all you do is divide by 10? Like if it says that they live for 900 years, it really means they only live for 90 years. And if they live for 600 years, it only means that they live for 60 years. All you do is divide by 10. And I didn't know the Lord as my Savior. I'd never read the Bible. So I, I liked my friend. So I thought, oh, well, maybe he's right. Well, after I became a Christian, then I started to learn a few things as I started reading the Bible. And I read about this guy who uh, uh, had his first son when he was 60 years old. So I divided by 10. <laughs> and I started thinking, you know, my friend, as nice as he was, he was wrong. And there's a lot of people that say things about the Bible that they, they haven't a clue what they're talking about. And people will tell you, oh, don't you know the Bible's full of errors? And then uh, you say, oh, uh, really, what are some of them? Oh, well, I couldn't just say off the top of my head. Oh, well, can you think of one even or two maybe? Well, no. Well, what makes you think the Bible's full of errors? Well, I heard someone say that. And so... They say that lies and falsehood and error goes around the world completely before truth has time to get its shoes on. Uh, false rumors and lies and things, boy, it spreads quick, like wildfire. And truth takes longer to, to get to its destination, uh, which is probably why we ought to hold off, uh, you know, making final judgment or condemnation on something or someone until all of the, the facts have come in and we've had time to think about it a little bit. Well, I hope that tonight's message is going to, uh, to strengthen you and uh, help you to uh, believe that our Bible, and particularly, listen to this, our King James Bible, that our King James Bible is trustworthy. I've been reading the book for 43 years, over and over. I've been studying all of these so-called errors in the Bible because, like you, I want to know what the truth is. And if something is true, great. If something is not true, well, I want to know. And I've been following these uh, uh, so-called errors in the Bible, and they're just like trying to chase a rabbit down a hole or something. Uh, some of them just lead to nowhere. Some of them are so bananas. And uh, often people, you know, they make things up and then say that they're not in the Bible. Well, of course, it's not in the Bible if you make it up, right? The worship of Mary is not in the Bible. How about that one? And yet how many millions and millions of, of uh, nice Catholic people are told that the worship of Mary is in the Bible. A woman I knew, a Christian woman I knew, she was told this, that the worship of Mary is not in the Bible. 
this is before she became a Christian. And she said, oh, yes, it is. And um, her girlfriend says, no, it's not. She said, yes, it is. Her girlfriend says, no, it's not. Have you ever read the Bible? She says, no, but I'm gonna. And so listen to this. She started on a Friday and by Sunday night, she'd had the entire Bible read. And she said, it's not in there. (laughs) And that's how she became a Christian. We need to get more and more people reading the Bible, folks, and uh, believing the Bible and trusting the Bible because God knows what he's talking about. I believe that the King James Bible in the English language is the preserved word of God. It is the most accurate. It's far more accurate. We had one uh, Sunday where we looked at a number of different uh, English translations and we, we compared them. And these things fall all over themselves sometimes. They trip themselves up with things they say and they say contradictory things. And one of them called the Amplified Bible keeps adding words and commentary right into the text. So you really don't know what is scripture and what is not just, you know, man's word to God's word. So it's really messed up. I I believe that if you have a King James Bible, you've got in the English language, the the best book uh, you could possibly have. Well, um, as I say tonight, we're going to uh, be looking at some of the so-called errors in the Bible. I announced that this morning. Uh, There are a lot of uh, so-called errors, but when you look at them, when you study them, all of a sudden the truth starts coming out. They say that um, uh, it's like four blind men, uh, each holding uh, a different part of an elephant. And uh, one of them is holding... uh, the trunk. And he describes the elephant and he says, oh man, this, this thing, it's, it's kind of like uh, the biggest, fattest snake. Why? It's, it's huge and it, it, it's muscular and long. Meanwhile, another blind man was holding the tail and said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Why? An elephant is much thinner and it's much shorter than what you're describing. Another one of the blind men was holding the ear of the elephant and says, you're both wrong. An elephant is kind of a large, flappy kind of a rug, sort of. That's what an elephant, you get the idea? And so when we take all of the evidence in, we find out that there is no mistake. And that's what we're going to do with uh, two or three things tonight. We don't have time to do any more, but trust me, there's a, a bunch of so-called, so-called errors that are not errors at all. So let's begin with our secret weapon. What's it called? Prayer. Prayer. And let's ask the Lord to uh, open the eyes of our understanding tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. There's not one of us here that knows all the truth. We are human. We're but dust. Uh, Lord, thou art divine, thou art God, a very God, and uh, there's nothing you do not know. And we thank you that you've given to us a book. And this one book, the Bible, has more truth in it than what any one human can possibly understand in a lifetime. Like in in the the world of uh, medicine, the world of science, the world of um, uh, technological things, and uh, even electronics, there's more in any one of those subjects than what any one person can possibly understand, fathom, comprehend, or conquer in an entire lifetime of study. And how much greater is your book? Our Father, we thank you for it. There's no book like it. In fact, it's a living book. It's alive. We're told that. And we can hold it to our heart, and uh, it will love us and comfort us. We can uh, hold it to our ear, and it whispers, I love you. It's an amazing book. Our Father, help us to uh, love it and use it more, not to listen to what the world has to say, but to read it and to um, get on our knees before you and, and let the Spirit of God teach us what it says. And so, Father, bless us now, these few short minutes that we spend together looking into two or three so-called errors. Enlighten our hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, let's uh, go to the Old Testament, and we're going to open up to two books. I want to show you the uh, book of 2 Samuel and the book of 1 Chronicles. 
So 2 Samuel chapter 8, 2 Samuel chapter 8, and put a marker there, bookmark, a piece of paper, a bulletin. 2 Samuel chapter 8, 2 Samuel 8, and 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 18. 1 Chronicles chapter 18. Now, this is a famous one. That's what I want us to look at, maybe, is a little more of the famous errors, so-called, in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 8, we'll look at verse 4. It says here, and David took from him, now I'll give you the context, in verse 3, David smote Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. Uh, now, that would be over towards um, the Babylon kind of um, uh, area. David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen and 20,000 footmen. And David hawked, that's how you pronounce that word there, H-O-U-G-H-E-D. It's pronounced hawk, hawked. And David hawked all the chariot horses, but reserved of them for an hundred chariots. Now, what that means there, it's, uh, it's like a hamstring. Um, back in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said that if Israel were to ever appoint themselves a king, they were not to multiply to themselves horses, uh, nor were they to multiply gold and uh, wives was another one. So there was, you know, three things the king wasn't supposed to do, but one of them was not to have too many horses. Uh, back then, uh, men had a nasty habit of trusting in things rather than trusting in God. That's why it's good if you don't have very much money. I know that doesn't sound popular today, and some people would, you know, tar and feather me and chase me out of town. But the truth is, if you have too much money, then you tend not to trust in God. How can you say, give us this day our daily bread, you know, if you've got millions and millions of dollars just sitting around and everything you could possibly want, you just push a button, someone comes in, and you tell them what you want, and they, and they get it for you. I mean, it's, it's almost silly. Uh, if you have too much money, chances are it's going to damage your faith. And so uh, maybe you've discovered this, that uh, the harder you try to make money, it seems the more elusive it becomes. What, what gives? I thought all you had to do was work hard and you'd become rich. Rich, I tell you. Uh, God is your heavenly father and he's watching over you. And so he won't allow you too much of a good thing. Honey is a nice thing if you have a little bit of honey. But imagine if all you did was take a big spoon and continually eat honey. You just drain that pot of honey. You, you'd literally get sick. Too much honey is not good for you. Uh, a little bit is fine. Everybody needs a little bit of money. But uh, what we need more than money is we need faith and love in God. And so um, God said, if they ever appointed a king, don't multiply horses. And so what David was doing here was he was obeying the Lord. That's why he did what he did. Now, it doesn't mean he killed the horses. They would have been still fine to do some agricultural work and uh, maybe pull some uh, sleighs and sleds and whatever, but they weren't able to be war horses. That's the point. They could no longer be war horses because he would uh, cut the the uh, the sinew there. The, he would hawk these horses. Anyhow, that's not what we're here to talk about. But I want you to look again. What do we got here in verse 4? We have 700 what? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I got ahead of myself. Sorry. Uh, beginning of verse 4, there's 1,000 what? Chariots. Chariots, right? And 700 what? Horsemen and 20,000 footmen. So we've got what it seems to be three things here. Um, aside from the horses, we've got chariots, we've got horsemen, and we've got footmen. We seem to have uh, 7,000 horsemen, 20,000, 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 footmen. Do I have that right? Is that about right? Okay. Now, let's go over to First Chronicles here. We're in chapter 18, and we've got the similar story 
verse 3, David smote Hadadezer, Hadadrezer, the king of Zobah, unto Hamath, and he went to establish his dominion by the river Euphrates. Verse 4, and David took from him a thousand chariots. Now that sounds like what we just read, doesn't it? A thousand? All right. And 7,000 horsemen. Is that what we read? Hmm. Wait a second. What's, what's going on here? It says 7,000 horsemen and 20,000 footmen. Is that one right? Whoa. 20,000 footmen. Yep. 1,000 chariots. So it's a, a matter here of uh, these uh, 700 horsemen or it says 7,000 horsemen. Ah, we got a little problem, don't we? Now the world says, aha, 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 caught you. You cannot deny this. There is definitely an error in the Bible. No question about it. One says 700, one says 7,000. Now what do you think of your Bible, huh? You seem to march around holding that thing high, saying there's no errors in the Bible. I just got you. I just found an error in your pretty little Bible. What will you do with that, my pretty? And then we Christians say, oh, oh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe there is an error in the Bible. What if I were to tell you that that's no error? What if I were to tell you tonight that both are right? You say, oh, come on. How can both be right? They're both stories about the same event. And one says 700, and one says 7,000. Come on. That's 10 times. How can they both be right? And yet I suggest to you, now do we have the overhead working, guys? Yes? Let's find out. Something's happening. There we are. Okay, so here's our first so-called error, all right? Is it 700 or is it 7,000? Which do you think it is? Well, second Samuel, first Chronicles. And I suggest to you that both of these accounts are right. Why? Why would I say such a thing? Because the author of second Samuel, his name was Samuel, first and second Samuel. So you get a clue there, you know, in the name. It's like um, some of the other uh, books of the Bible. You get a clue as to who the author was, like the Gospel of John. <laughs> you get a bit of a clue with the title. So here we have Samuel. Now, in Chronicles, it doesn't say, but uh, Ezra is the accepted author of the book of uh, Chronicles. Now, Samuel was much more involved with war. If you know anything about the life of Samuel, there was a lot of wars that he was uh, personally involved with throughout his long life. And of course, he worked with Saul and he worked with David and uh, he died as an old man. Um, and so uh, he knew something about wars and he was uh, instructed in them, whereas Ezra was not. Now, uh, let's see here. What do we got? Uh, we've got, um, make sure I do this right here for you. A thousand chariots, a thousand chariots. So far, so good. There we go. 700 horsemen, 7,000 horsemen. Now that's where uh, the world says our Bible is wrong. And then uh, 20,000 footmen, 20,000 footmen. Here's what we know. Uh, there were chariots, there were horses, there were horsemen, and there were footmen. Uh, now, does this make sense to you that the horses go with the chariots? <laughs> you see, back then, they didn't have horseless carriages yet, did they? They, uh, they had to have the horse with the carriage. And so the chariots, there's different types of chariots, you know. Maybe your mental image of a chariot is some, something uh, a little smaller than this pulpit, and a guy's standing up there, and he looks something like Charlton Heston, and he's got all of these horses out there, and he's furiously whipping them, and they're going around a Roman Colosseum sort of thing, and they got the wheels turning, and there's a lot of excitement and dust. Well, that is true. That is a chariot, but it's only one type of chariot. How many different types of cars are there? 
who cares? There are so many. And there's little cars like the smart car that you could almost pick up and carry. And then there's big stretch limousines, you know, like President Trump drives in and you can't pick up one of those. There's big cars, there's little cars, there's everything in between, there's vans, all kinds of things, right? And so it was with chariots. They made all kinds of different chariots and they made chariots for war, war chariots. That's what military people did back then was they maximized their technology of the day and they're going up against the bad guys or we'll call them the enemy and they want to have powerful machinery. You know that they uh, would devise all kinds of, they, they used the word engines uh, in the Old Testament. They would uh, uh, besiege a city and they would uh, build these great big uh, monstrosities that they would move up to a wall because uh, the walls were the defense of the city and they would attack and overcome that way. They had all kinds of ingenious ideas. Alexander the Great was one of the great military geniuses of war. If there was one thing he knew, no, if there were two things he knew, one was how to party and the other was how to win a war. And his strategies are still studied today in all of the the naval uh, academies and all of the schools of war and things like that, they study the, uh, the way that Alexander won his, um, his, his battles. And so back then in David's day, they had the very same idea that they would maximize their technology and so on. So they had different kinds of chariots. So we know that the uh, chariots needed the horses. Horses went with the chariots and uh, the horsemen went with the horses. So that's why they're called horsemen, right? They're not cowmen. That would be the farmers, right? But the horsemen, like the uh, cowboys almost, they, they went with the horses. The horses went with the chariots. You get the idea. Um, now, there doesn't appear to be any other um, horses on which they rode. They were connected here with the chariots. Uh, there may have been some other um, military guys on horses, probably, but in the passage, we're just told about the horsemen with the uh, chariots. And then we're told the footmen. Now, footmen are called footmen. Why do you think? Right, because they attack your feet, right? Because they're not on horses, they're on foot. They're the footmen. The horsemen are on the, the horses or connected with the chariots. Now, um, an important thing to keep in mind here is that a good military leader will train his soldiers. Does that make sense? Yes or no? Absolutely. Boy, uh, what's the sense in having an army if they don't train? We're beginning a new ministry here in the church. It's called the um, Security Ministry Team. And uh, the men were meeting again after church today over here on this side. And we're outfitting them with radios and those little curly things that go behind the ear so they can talk to each other. And they'll have vests that say security on there and different things. Now, what's the sense in having a security team ministry if they don't train, right? If they don't get together and say, okay, now what are we going to do if this happens, if that happens, and figure out what they're going to do. They're a team. What's the sense of a football team if it doesn't practice, if it doesn't strategize, right? Uh, everyone just do whatever you want, whatever you think is best. Let's go out in the football field and just have a great time. How many games are they going to win? They'd be lucky, you know, to survive. They'll get trampled by the other, the other team. The other teams all organize, you know, their coaches and all that, they organize them, right? Well, military leaders, they train their men. And a good military leader will train his soldiers to be not just footmen, but horsemen. And not just horsemen, but footmen. Say, so why would he train them for both jobs in case during a battle he's losing too many horsemen and he's got to get some footmen to take over? and those chariots, and he's got to move some guys up, then they'll know what to do. Likewise, if he's losing too many footmen, he's got to get a, a few more footmen in there, he'll grab some horsemen. 
And so a good military leader will uh, train his men so that he can swap them around on the battlefield. And so um, if the horsemen were connected with the chariots, then really the question is, what's the problem with 700? What's the problem with 700? Now, uh, in our example up here, we've got 700 horsemen, 7,000 horsemen. But if they're connected with the chariots, these large, we're not talking about a little smart car, you know, with a horse out front. We're talking about a, a large war vehicle. Uh, what's, the, what's the problem? Uh, there must have been 7,000 horsemen as Chronicle says. Well, then why did Samuel say 700? If the correct answer is 7,000, why did Samuel say 700? Now, we can answer that uh, by asking a question. Um, maybe a couple questions. How many here own a car? Or maybe you and the bank own a car together. There's a bunch of hands. All right, good. How many, how many wheels uh, does your car have? Four. Any other guesses? Five. Why would it have five? Say it again. A spare. Oh, yeah, we forgot about that one in the trunk. It's a spare wheel or a spare tire. Your, your car, properly equipped, doesn't have four tires or four wheels. It has five. In case you get a flat, you have a spare. Now you see where this is going? The whole principle of having five tires. I mean, they just didn't think of this in the last 50 years. They thought of keeping spares for thousands of years. That's the whole concept. Why does a good fisherman carry more than one type of the very same lure? Why? Say it one word. Spares, right. Why does a golfer carry more than one golf ball? Spares. Why does a tennis player carry more than one tennis ball? Spares. Why do uh, air, airlines, airlines put a co-pilot in with a pilot? <laughs> right, yeah, in case something happens to the pilot. If he or she's got a heart attack, then you've at least got, you know, a spare <laughs> sitting there. <clears throat> yeah. A professional military leader will, will put extra men with every chariot. Why? Spares. Because you know, in a war, they shoot back. <laughs> right? They shoot back at you. And, uh, you know, if you've got a few men in a chariot and the arrows are coming, <laughs> and two of them are toast, you need spares, don't you? And that's what they did. It only, wouldn't you? If, if you're preparing to, you know, battle against the Philistines and they got their big war machine going and you get your chariots and everything, you're not going to put one man in a chariot, are you? Well, he takes one arrow and he's out. Or a good rock in the head will do it too. And what they did was they would put 10 horsemen per chariot. And so Samuel, who was more familiar with war, he just said 700 uh, horsemen, or the idea is 700 chariots of 10 horsemen each. Because the two men looked at it differently. Like the four blind men, each holding a different part of an elephant. Samuel was more familiar with war, whereas Ezra was not. And so um, not only did they have 10 horsemen for 700 chariots, but it would appear they had 300 spare more chariots because there was 1,000 chariots. Now, this principle of what I just described of having spares, 700 chariots with 10 horsemen in each one is your 7,000 horsemen. This principle of having the, the spares is seen again in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Just turn a page there. 2 Samuel chapter 10. And uh, verse 18. Now David here is uh, fighting against the Syrians. Verse 18, the Syrians fled before Israel and David slew the men of 700 
chariots of the Syrians and 40,000 horsemen and smote Bo, uh, Snow, Shobach, uh, the captain of the host, who died there. But I want you to see here what he did. He slew the men, 700 chariots of Syrians, 40,000 horsemen. You got that? 700 and then 40,000. Now, go over to uh, uh, 1 Chronicles, and you were in chapter 18. Go to chapter 19. And verse 18. So here it says, But the Syrians fled before Israel, and David slew of the Syrians 7,000 men which fought in chariots. Look at that. And 40,000 footmen. Now, if you go back again, and let's compare what we got here. Uh, see if I did that right. Okay, yeah, we've got men of 700 chariots. We've got 7,000 men in chariots. We've got in Samuel 40,000 horsemen. But look, in Chronicles, they're also called what? Why? Because a good military leader will what? Train his men so that they can swap around. You see that? There's no mistake. These men were not stupid. When they went out to war, they knew that their very lives were on the line. They might not come back home that night. And so they did everything in their power to prepare for war. And I just want you to see here, because this is really interesting, that um, uh, how both uh, Samuel and Ezra describe this. Once again, if you uh, look at 2 Samuel and chapter 10, verse 18, David slew the men of 700 chariots. In 1 Chronicles 19:18, David slew of the Syrians 7,000 men. Once again, 700 chariots of, Syrian, of the Syrians. Ezra in Chronicles says 7,000 men. Do you see that? Is there a, an error here? No. Because the men of 700 chariots is 7,000 men. Can you see that? No? Yeah. Some are still looking a little confused. What book of the Bible are we in? <laughs> well, uh, remember Samuel wrote differently than did Ezra. Now this second example is more clear than the first example that they say, well, look, see, there's an error in that one. Second Samuel chapter 8, see, is an error, right? But this one here now, it's even more clear in chapter 10. The men of 700 chariots, how many men were there? There were 7,000 men. Because in each chariot, how many men did they put? 10. Now, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Because that was typical military strategy back then. That's what they did. They, they just didn't flip a coin and say, well, how many men are we going to put in, you know, a chariot? Let's, let's best out of three guys. They didn't do that. They knew that, how, what they needed. They knew they needed chariots of a certain size. They knew they needed 10 men in each one. Through trial and error, they probably lost a bunch of wars before they finally came up with the, uh, the standard of 10 men for every chariot. And then you'll notice the 40,000 are both called footmen and horsemen. And so it's very interesting when you uh, compare Scripture and Scripture. Samuel says that David slew the men of 700 chariots. Ezra says that David slew 7,000 men which fought in chariots. Therefore, we can conclude that there were 7,000, we'll call them soldiers, for 700 chariots. And that equals 10 men per chariot. By the way, each one of those chariots, one of those men would have been the captain. And then the, one of those men would have been the lieutenant. Why do you have to have a lieutenant? In case your captain gets whacked. Then you got someone that can still lead the platoon, right? Do you, so do you see this here? Do you, does that make any sense? There is no error. Both are correct. One talked about 700 chariots. The other talked about the men in the chariots. Can you see that? There is no error there. When you start comparing Scripture with Scripture, then you start to, to see the truth. Okay, let's move on. Let's put that to bed for a moment. Let's go to Proverbs. This one is always a fun one. I hope I didn't 
tax your brain too much there. You know, it's Sunday night, we're tired. Boy, we had a great day today. The house was packed. Did you notice that? Yeah. After, after service this afternoon, uh, we got together, some of us, and we were talking about, now where can we put more people? Because we're having to put out more chairs and things. The blessing of the Lord, you know, it maketh rich. And so uh, we're figuring out what we can do. So we've got some more ideas on how we might be able to increase our capacity down here <clears throat> by as much as 30 more people without compromising. You know, no one has to sit in somebody's lap, right? So we're figuring out how we can put maybe as much as another 30 people uh, in here. And we're going to make one the captain and one the lieutenant. All right, now we're in Proverbs and chapter 26. Proverbs chapter 26. I'm going to get you to read this one with me. This one's almost funny. But it's one of those that unsaved people, the world looks at and says, aha, aha, another error. I found it. Look at that. Proverbs chapter 26. I'd like you to read with me out loud verses 4 and 5. Let's read it together. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And some people will say, oh, there it is right there, as plain as the nose on your face. There's an error. I don't know. Maybe they took a lunch break in between verses 4 and 5. How could they have made such a crazy mistake like that in the Bible? That's not a mistake at all. Uh, this is one of those so-called errors. It's not a contradiction. Chapter 26, verses 1 to 12, deal with the fool. That is the context of those 12 verses. It deals with the fool. In verse 4, it says that if we deal with a fool after his own ways, then we're going to be like him. For example, if he curses and we curse him back, then we are like him. And nothing good is accomplished. Answer thou not, answer not a fool according to his folly. If he curses you, don't you curse him back. In fact, the New Testament bears that out, that we are to overcome evil with what? Good. You don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. Some people say, well, I fight fire with fire. Tell that to a fireman. Firemen say, well, that's not how we do it. <laughs> we fight fire with a hose. We fight fire with fire extinguishers. And that's typically the way they fight fires. Now, I do know that some of these wild brush fires, they have to set a fire to make a burned out space. Uh, so I, I know that there's some technique to that. I understand that. But you look at the big helicopters that fly over top that dump stuff on the forest fire. They don't dump fire, right? They don't fight fire with fire that way. Some people think, well, you step on my toes, I'll jump on your head. I fight fire with fire. Well, then you're answering a fool according to his folly. And you're going to be just like him. You're going to be no better than him, in fact. Probably even worse. Now, verse 5, it says here, answer a fool according to his folly. Now, in some cases, we have to answer a fool. You don't always have to answer a fool. Did you know that? Sometimes you can just turn and walk away. Did you know that? Sometimes it's good just to say to a fool, oh, that's interesting, I'll think about that, and diffuse the bomb. You don't always have to say, well, you're wrong, buddy, and here are 17 reasons why. You don't have to do that. Sometimes you just diffuse the crazy thing. Some guys are born crazy, and they're going to be crazy all their lives. And, you know, if you get involved with them, it's, it's like the old saying, never kick a skunk. Have you ever, ever heard that? Never kick a skunk. Say it with me. Never kick a skunk. Okay, good. Now we all know. If you see a skunk, don't run up to it. Why, you skunk, and kick it. Don't do that. You'll be sorry. They say, uh, you know, people who wrestle pigs, there are some people who, who like to wrestle pigs. Well, you lose. <laughs> you, 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 you always get dirty, and the pig loves it. So, you know, you just can't win. And so oftentimes, it's a good idea, just diffuse the bum. Someone says something crazy to you, and unless it's something you have to answer back. But if it's just something, you know, nutsy, cuckoo, 
uh, just say, oh, that's an interesting thought, and then walk away or change the subject. That's a good way to handle a fool. But sometimes you have to answer a fool. You must answer back. Um, and yet what we must do is give a proper answer. Uh, answer a fool according to his folly. And so um, you must answer and give him a proper answer so that he doesn't think that his folly is actually sound wisdom. He might say to you, um, there is no God. And then, boy, what an opportunity for witnessing. Uh, if you're a soul winner, boy, there's a golden opportunity. And you say, did you know that what you said is in the Bible? How many know the verse in Psalm? Fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Did you know that the Bible agrees with you? <laughs> He'd say, it does? <laughs> What a great opportunity to answer a, a fool back according to his folly. Uh, watch, lest he be wise in his own conceit, <clears throat> in his own thoughts. And so that's an easy one. That's not a contradiction at all in there, but it's a fun one to do, and, and we threw that in there. But I want to show you one more, and that's all we have time for. If you'll go back to Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, and this one gets picked on once in a while. People call it a crazy mistake in the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, and look at verse 14. This is God speaking to Noah. He says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch, that, pitch it within and without with pitch. That's like a slime. Uh, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. So 300 one way, uh, 50 uh, another, and uh, 30 another. And I have read where people who design ships seem to agree that that is a perfect kind of a configuration uh, for uh, floating around the water. Verse uh, 16, a window shalt thou make to the ark, uh, and in, the, uh, in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And so, uh, people laugh at this, the idea of a man building an ark, and they say it couldn't be big enough. Uh, they say there's no way that that ark, you know, this many feet, this many feet, this many feet, there's no way that that could hold all of the some 45,000 different types of animals that there were back in Noah's day. They say it's impossible. It cannot happen. You cannot fit that many animals into that small ark. You need something way bigger than that. Well, let's see what we got. Someone did a model made a nice looking model too and uh, there is the ark in comparison with I think that's the Santa Maria what is the Santa Maria the ship what ship Christopher Columbus ship right yeah and so it kind of looks a little like it although in real life it was much bigger you know that it was much bigger than that uh, so anyhow here is the size of the ark in comparison with the Santa Maria and uh, by the way, that looks like a boxcar train, you know, from a choo-choo train, right? Boxcar. Uh, but this gives you an idea of the 300 cubits and the 50 cubits and the 30 cubits. And uh, this is one cubit high. This is the window along the top. Now, I know that there are different artists' conception of this thing here. We're not going to get into that tonight. And someone says, well, I don't know. I think that there was only one window and a giraffe hanging out of the... Because that's what my storybooks uh, told me. Well, that's fine. Uh, now, let's do some um, mathematics. Oh, look, I have another picture for you. Isn't that sweet? I forgot I had this picture for you. Uh, the uh, picture's a little bit pixely. I, I'm sorry, but uh, this is a picture of the actual ark. Did you know that? And the animals are still in there, and there's Noah down there in overalls. And so uh, this kind of gives you an idea of, of a cross-section of what the ark would have looked like 
with the different stories in there and the height of the people. Give you an idea anyhow. Again, it's all just artist conception, but it's kind of nice to have something to go by. Now, let's do the math. And so here the ark is 300 cubits, 50 cubits, 30 cubits. Uh, what is a cubit? Well, a cubit, uh, they had uh, kind of a standard of about um, a foot and a half, 18 inches. They would claim from the elbow to the end of the fingers. There, there used to be also a royal cubit that they talked about in use on the temple, but I don't think that in, is involved here because this is so many, many years before the temple was ever, uh, ever given. So if we do the math, we have... Um, uh, oh, I did the math for you. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall, okay? Uh, this ceiling is something like 20 feet tall. So uh, two of these plus another five feet. That'll give you an idea of the height of the, um, the arc. So that's pretty big stuff. Now, total capacity in cubic feet is 1,518,750 cubic feet. Um, a train boxcar is 40 feet long by 10 foot by 10 foot. There's 4,000 cubic feet of storage in a boxcar. Now, if we divide, um, we've got 1,518,750 cubic feet in Noah's Ark. And if we divide it by 4,000 cubic feet in the average train boxcar, what do we come up with? 380 train boxcars will fit inside the, uh, the Ark. And there's a picture there of... Uh, a facsimile, anyhow, of a, a boxcar, give you an idea of what we're talking about. So 380 of these will fit inside of Noah's Ark. So far, so good? Okay. Um, now, let's get, to, uh, let's get to some animals. There we are. The animal species are estimated to be something like uh, 17,600 different actual species. Now, you take some by twos and some by sevens, and you get 45,000 animals in total. Now, some animals are large, some animals are small, right? Like little puppies and some elephants, and you average them all out, and they should average about the size of a sheep. Some are big, some are small. A lot of them are small, but they average out to about the size of a sheep. Now, so far, so good? Are we, any questions so far? Good. All right. So one of these boxcars will hold uh, 240 sheep. Now, remember, the boxcar is 10 feet tall. And so uh, by, by dividing the boxcar, putting in a, a story or two, you can get 240 sheep into one of those boxcars. Now, if we divide 45,000, that's the animals, divided by 240 sheep, that's the average size, we find we come out with a need for 188 standard train boxcars. And how many boxcars did we say will fit into Noah's Ark? 380. How many do we need <clears throat> to get 45,000 animals, the average size of a sheep? 188, right. And so here you have a photo. <laughs> you know what that is? What is that, Devian? That's a, a train station. It's a train yard. And you are looking at uh, hundreds of, uh, see these little individual boxcars and so on? This is one of the largest uh, train yards in the world. And I did not stop to count every one of those but my guess is that uh, there's 187, um, oh, I missed this one, 188 boxcars. I'm only taking a guess, that's all. But um, it gives you an idea. Uh, you take all those boxcars and they will fit in there. Now, let's do the, finish off the math here. So 380, that's how many we said would fit inside Noah's Ark. Subtract 188, that's how many we need for the animals. And that leaves us 192 standard train boxcars left over. That's uh, 
uh, over 50% of the ark is left over. That's 750,000 cubic feet of space. <clears throat> Isn't that interesting? And so we've got 188 boxcars for all the animals. We have left over 96 boxcars of room for Noah's family and 96 boxcars of room for food. So you tell me, would Noah's Ark hold all of the animals? Yes or no? Easily, easily. But I think it was God's design, not so much for animals to go in there, it was God's design and invitation for whosoever will to come into the ark. Jesus is a type of ark. And uh, there's room for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. No one has to die and go to hell. There's room for everyone on the ark. There's room for everyone in Christ, if everyone would come. But so many people say, I refuse to go because there's things in the Bible I do not understand. And you let that keep you from getting saved? I refuse to come because someone offended me. Some so-called Christian offended me. I, I refuse to come. You let a person stand in the way of your eternal destiny? It doesn't make sense, does it? Some man or woman might say, well, I'm just too great a sinner. No, no, there's, there's enough blood to cover the sin. You needn't worry. Will you come? Well, maybe some other day. And then you arrive at the true answer. It's sad, isn't it? The world is crazy. That's why God needs us to let our light shine. And I want to call upon you to let your light shine this week. And I want you to ask God for an opportunity to influence someone for Jesus Christ. Why should another week go by with tens of thousands of people dying and off to a Christless eternity? 55 million people die every year all around the world, approximately. Why should even one more soul die and go to hell? Let's, tonight, bow our hearts, close our eyes, and ask God to use us this week to help someone else come to know him as Savior. Let's bow our heads right now.